In today's competitive e-commerce environment, it's never been more important to earn and maintain the trust of your customers. Merchant Fraud Journal's To Catch a Fraudster podcast is supported by SIFT, the leader in digital trust and safety. SIFT empowers companies to stop fraud and grow without risk. Visit SIFT.com assessment to schedule a consultation with SIFT's trust and safety architects. Industry experts who have decades of fraud fighting experience at companies like Facebook, Square, and Google. They'll help create a custom plan for your business with an emphasis on technology, organizational structure, and process. Visit sift.com slash assessment today. And we're live. Dan, thanks so much for joining us on the program. Happy to be here, Bradley. Dan is a former FBI and CIA member we are so excited to have him on the program. What else do you need to know to be excited about a fraud prevention program than that? Dan, why don't you tell everyone who you are, where you're from, who you represent, and then we'll jump right in. Maybe just a rundown of how I got here would be useful. I actually started my career working as a beat cop. I know a lot of people are drawn to my background at FBI and CIA, but it's really my years as a beat cop that uh, taught me the, the criminal mindset you know, going from call to call and doing dozens of small interviews, getting to know suspects, witnesses, victims. That really, really shaped my career. So now I'm at my degree, I'm working a beat, dispatcher sends me to my very first computer crime. And when I when I arrived, I discovered it really wasn't a computer crime. Someone had just thrown a computer through a window. That was a great job um, traveling the world, you know, grant us access to the information systems to which they had access. It could be a janitor, it could be an IT administrator, anyone who uh, was near is who I would work with. And then uh, six and a half years old, I decided to become an FBI agent. I'm precise, as your listeners might know, FBI has an age requirement. You have to... Uh, you have to kind of finish Quantico before you turn 37, or at least enter Quantico before you turn 37, because it's mandatory retirement at 57. You have to have 20 years in. So I left CIA, went to FBI, did the special agent thing, investigating cyber terrorism out of the Washington field office. After just a couple of years, I went back to CIA as a, as a contractor. That uh, contractor was acquired by Raytheon. I lasted there for a year, uh, then moved back to the Phoenix area, and again, because I valued my time working a beat, I became a, a volunteer, a reserve Phoenix police officer, I'm just you know working a beat, uh, developing those skills. Eventually, I ran out of money because that's a that's a position you don't get paid for. And then I became a special agent at the Arizona Attorney General's office, which was a great job. It was like my job at the bureau, but there was no chance of me being transferred to Puerto Rico. Just investigating, you know, fraud and computer tampering, uh, money laundering, all those sorts of uh, cases. And then I was uh, made the assistant chief agent overall major fraud out of the Arizona Attorney General's office. And then uh, after a few years, uh, I developed a case against some influential attorneys in the Phoenix area that that led to me getting fired. And I joined Shape Security, a Silicon Valley startup, and then F five acquired shape security about two and a half years ago. So right now I am the global head of intelligence for F5. And really what that means is 
billions of transactions flow through the F5 bot defense infrastructure every day. And you know, my team analyzes all those transactions looking for evidence of attacks, evidence of new tools. We study how attackers evolve and, and become more sophisticated. We look for new monetization schemes. We try to understand what motivates the attackers. And then we prepare reports and you know do podcasts like this to uh, educate not just consumers, but enterprise uh, security and fraud staff. Well, you definitely have quite the resume and we really, really appreciate you coming on the program to share this information with our audience. And the reason that we really wanted to interview F5 and why we were really, really excited to have you specifically on the program is because this nexus between fraud and cyber criminality is really becoming almost one in the same. And I've said many times on this program, when I started in this industry, everything was about chargebacks. That was the only thing that anybody spoke about. That was the entire industry. And now as we've moved more and more into the future and vectors have developed and technologies have developed, we see now that chargebacks are becoming a smaller and smaller piece of a much larger puzzle that has to do much more with cybersecurity writ large. And I love the homepage of the F5 website, which I'm just going to read off right here, where it says fraud prevention without cybersecurity won't get you very far in about 48 font, which I think is really, really, really important for people. And people are becoming more aware of it as time goes on. And so I think I want to start before we get into maybe some stories, because I'm sure you have a bunch Talk to me about that nexus at a professional level. Somebody who's seen it all, worked in these circles for decades. How should merchants really be thinking about defending their businesses at this point in history? Where should they be drawing the lines between fraud and cybersecurity? And where should they be looking to make specific connections that will help them to defend against attacks? I don't think they should draw any lines between fraud and cybersecurity. I think the overlap is that great. The collaboration between the teams is that necessary. So if, in fact, I was uh, at a large retailer the, talking to the security team and we had discovered what we believe to be manual attacks against their login application. So we, we told the security team, look, this is all manual fraud we'd like to get in front of your fraud team and you know, and let them know that this is happening, how it's happening, why it's happening, give them all the telemetry that we have on the attack. And their answer was F the fraud team. And I was wow. really taken aback by that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I see oftentimes an adversarial relationship between the security and the fraud team. And those are I think uh, the most poorly run, inefficiently, ineffective organizations when there's this adversarial relationship between them. Conversely, I've talked to CISOs where I say, look, I'd really like to get in front of your fraud team. We found some intelligence that would really interest them. And he'll interrupt me and go, just a minute, he picks up the phone and then the fraud team walks into the conference room. So the latter is the way enterprises should think about this. They, they need to be in the same room they need to be constantly collaborating. And I really feel like their funding should come from the same pot so they're not you know, competing. 
but I'm seeing it more and more as I interact with more and more security teams, a less adversarial relationship, which is an improvement. They're heading the right direction, but they, everyone still has a long way to go. So I want to dive into that a little bit. When you're looking to create this ecosystem where your fraud and your criminality teams are working together, what are some specific actionable things that you can tell people who maybe are doing this or haven't thought about doing it, but are open to the idea if you had to give them three things that they could do to make that happen, what would that be? I'd say one is leverage ISACs and make sure you're comparing notes with your your peers because an attack against one retailer, the insights clean from understanding that attack benefit all retailers. Same with the, you know hotels and airlines and banks and credit unions and insurance companies. They all need to uh, compare notes on a regular basis. And I, I've been to many ISAC conferences and meetings and some ISACs are doing doing it really well and other ISACs are doing it very poorly. So I think the information sharing is the first thing that they, they should do. And then the second thing is, I think, be honest in, with yourselves and gain visibility. Now, that's the very first step is, is to understanding you know, what's happening to your enterprise is to gain visibility. And the only way you gain visibility is by you know deploying client-side signals to to collect telemetry everywhere that you believe might be under attack. And then uh, I think what's key and is, is often missing is people think they can do this kind of at the network layer without collecting behavioral biometrics or signals from the device or from the browser. And that that's uh, just a game of whack-a-mole. You really do need those client-side signals, and you need to be objective about which applications are likely to be targeted. It isn't just login, right? We see attacks against create account, forgot password, add payee, send money, add to cart. I mean, virtually every public facing application is vulnerable. And then I guess another issue that I see is some enterprises, they want to keep their head in the sand. They don't want to know the truth. Um, For example, a social networking site, they believe they have 8 million subscribers. And if we deploy our telemetry and we say, you have 98% automated traffic on your login, which means there are a lot of, of your accounts, your subscribers are bots. They don't want to hear that. You know, It goes from 8 million uh, subscribers that they believe they have to 800,000 subscribers. That is bad news for a social networking site. So um, the, you know, the, the Twitters and the Facebooks they really don't want an honest answer to how many bots do they have because if if they got an honest answer i think it would probably have a negative impact on their evaluation and their on their shareholder value so take me down into the organizational level when you have a head of fraud and you have a head of security how should they be working together to make these things happen should they be holding daily meetings should they be syncing their teams twice a week? Should they be sending reports to each other? What kind of processes can organizations put in place to make sure that the right hand knows what the left hand is doing? Well, all those are consistent with treating one as a left hand and the other as a right hand. I'm proposing they should be on the same hand, that they shouldn't meet once a week They because they don't need to meet because they work together uh, day in and day out. They don't need to ex- exchange reports because they're all collaborating on the same report. And that change is, I've seen it at some enterprises and they're very, very successful, but oftentimes there's just this competitive 
angle between security and fraud. So for example, security will typically engage F5 and say, help us stop the bots. So we deploy our client-side signals. We tell them you have 95% automated attack traffic. They don't, you know, it's jaw-dropping when we tell them 95, 98, 99% of all your login traffic, you know, malicious bots. But we eventually we convince them, we go into mitigation mode, and then guess what happens? Fraud is reduced significantly. So now you've got this 25-person fraud team that, you know, was really busy because, you know, they had so much attack traffic. Now it's being stopped. It doesn't even reach origin. And the fraud team is wondering, what are we going to do with all of our time? And I don't think of it that way. I think they should embrace having less traffic to look through because now it's going to be easier to find the fraud. And, you know, pouring over a billion transactions to look for fraud, that, that is not a, you know, an efficient solution. What you want is to pour through a few thousand transactions to find the fraud. So fraud teams, unfortunately, are sometimes threatened when 90% of the attack traffic is eliminated, but they shouldn't be because that's just going to give them time to focus on on uh, the manual fraud and and I think really, really reduce the amount of fraud by a sig- in a significant way. All right. So I want to make sure that we jump into some stories. I could talk to you for a long time, but we try to keep these under 40 minutes. So I want to make sure we get some of what I'm sure are incredible stories that you have. So let's jump in. Give me your, your craziest story of cybercrime or fraud that you're willing and able to share in a public forum. And I'd love to hear it and talk about it. Well, I think the first one is one that I've kind of already alluded to when we first went in line early days at Shape Security, long before F5 acquired us. We go in line, you know, we deploy our JavaScript or SDK, we're collecting these signals, and we decide that 98% is uh, automated attack traffic. We immediately panicked. We do. We thought there's no way something's wrong with our signals. There's no way 98% of all the traffic is attack traffic. And we were really panicked. So we checked and double checked and triple checked. And over the course of hours, little by little, the entire team just gradually started to warm up to the idea that, no, it's true. 98% is attack traffic. So that is how early days at shape. I mentioned during my bio that interesting you know, background, FBI and CIA, BCOP. I've seen a lot of interesting things, but when I got to shape and saw 98, 99% automated attack traffic, uh, I actually found that, that jaw-dropping. So th- that's the, the first story is that if you measure that you are under 98, 99% automated attack, you can believe it because it's very, very common. It's not the exception either. We, we see it regularly across virtually every vertical. So how does that happen without people noticing? I'm guessing we have merchants out there who are listening and thinking there's there's no way that this is happening at my shop. How can it be that something like that flies under the radar? Isn't yeah, there some uh, correlation to the volumes of merchandise you're moving where you see, wow, we're signing all these accounts, but nobody's really buying anything? Uh, what did the business say when you came to them and showed them this? And when they got over their initial maybe shock and, and disbelief that, that this had gone undetected? I mean, that's not 
I feel like 98% is not something that you need an expert to come in and tell you. It should just be blatantly obvious from the internal data that you're collecting that something is off kilter. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. Typically, the reason why, there are a couple of reasons. One is it doesn't happen overnight. It isn't like there's just humans logging in and then at you know 1 a.m., there's a huge bot attack because that they'll notice. What happens is because these attacks are persistent, they're all day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's just a sustained 90, 95, 98% automated attack traffic. And because it happened gradually, it's kind of like the, you know, the, the frog in the, in the pot of water, because it happened gradually, they didn't, they didn't notice it. And there's a little bit of uh, maybe confirmation bias happening because a lot of the business units wanted to believe it to be true. They wanted to believe that, yes, our marketing efforts are paying off. We are getting a lot of new accounts, new subscribers. Yeah, the the changes we made to the website, look at the huge impact it had on number of subscribers. So that's one reason. It happened gradually. There's confirmation bias happening. And then I guess the final reason is for years, these security operation centers did notice the attacks because they were coming from one IP or a few dozen IPs or maybe even hundreds of IPs. But over years of stopping those with using, you know, web application firewall blocking by IP or for by ASN, autonomous system, or by region, they've caused the attackers to become highly, highly distributed. So we are seeing attacks now come from over a million IP addresses where each IP is used maybe once to five times. And that's because for years, these attackers had been blocked by IP. So they made adjustments, they evolved, they became more sophisticated. So typically we'll see a security operations center say, or the CISO say, look, we think we've got about 20 to 30% sustained bot attack. So they're aware there's a bot attack. They just underestimate it because they miss the long tail of hundreds of thousands or millions of IPs where there are only a handful of transactions that they're not hitting any rate limits. Those are generally the reasons why these enterprises don't notice. All right. Next story. Well, I uh, I went to work at a Russian human click farm solving CAPTCHAs. Now we're um, talking. This is the kind of thing we like on this program, Dan. Russian click farms. <laughs> I could put that in the headline and we're good. We're going to uh, we're going to get tons of of listens now. You know, because F5, you know, we have a bot defense product. Oftentimes we see prospective customers using reCAPTCHA or other forms of CAPTCHA. And I've always hated encountering any sort of CAPTCHA when I'm shopping or you know, buying an airline ticket, doing anything. I hate being asked to pick fire hydrants out of pictures or crosswalks. So I really wanted to understand how are bots, how are bad actors getting around these CAPTCHAs? So I researched it, and sure enough, they're human click farms that just solve CAPTCHAs all day long. And it wasn't enough for me to just learn about human click farms. I wanted to join a human click farm. Nothing like personally experiencing something gives you a, you know, a better understanding. I went through the training, and this was just surprised me. They, they give you really good training on how to solve CAPTCHAs. They want you to solve CAPTCHAs quickly. And there, and there are rules, and I appreciated the training because now I can solve CAPTCHAs much more effectively. I was at 30 or 40% figuring out those stupid squiggly letters actually read. And now I'm probably up to 60 or 70% success rate. So I go through the training, they measure your speed. And if you're not solving them fast enough, then you don't get hired. And I remember almost 
being eliminated. Like I, I, I almost wasn't solving captures fast enough to be hired. So I, I called in my daughter and she helped me. And so we were both able to kind of mini, mini crowdsource the solving of captures and I was able to get hired. Then I started solving captures for bots. And I remember I solved maybe 40, 50 or 60 captures. I don't remember how many, but I hadn't even earned one penny US yet. Wow. So it is very exploitative of uh, impoverished regions. You know, I've since uh, interacted with many of these human click farms. Their entire business is built around it. And they try to say that only security researchers are using it. And it's really not facilitating any fraud, but their head is in the sand. It is, in, it is facilitating all sorts of uh, malicious activity out there on the internet. So where did you find this? Did you go on Upwork? Where, where do you go to find... If I want to join a Russian click farm, where do I go? We'll put it up on the job board, Dan, after we finish recording the episode. Well, I had joined a 2Captcha, and that's a, a Russian CAPTCHA solving service that uses humans. So yeah, 2Captcha.com uh, is one. But wow. if you just Google, I guess, human-powered CAPTCHA solving services, you'll find dozens. Wow. It's always amazing to me what people are willing to do to perpetrate fraud. Here, though, I'm almost doubly impressed because you're outsourcing it to other people. It's doubly exploitative and doubly terrible. So you yeah. almost get bonus points for doing the fraud and exploiting a whole nother group of people while committing fraud. I wondered if I could start a company that solves captures and then collect money and then simply hire two captures to solve the captures and I'd be a middleman to make money, but the, it doesn't add up. The numbers don't work. <laughs> You're going to have to find a better place to arbitrage to, yes. to, to, to do arbitrage. Exactly. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. I don't know how we're going to top that. That's definitely, I'm putting that up on the board of most impressive stories. Let's go for the third one. This one I like because it proves that these attackers are not perfect. You know, they make mistakes as well. We have a, a large top three US bank as a customer, and they were hit with an attack that was like 6 billion transactions over the course of a few weeks. It was really one of the largest attacks we ever mitigated. And we noticed one account was attempted or like 323 million times. And we thought, that's unusual. Usually accounts are tried you know, once or a handful of times, not 323 million times. And then the next account that was tried the most was tried like 100 million times. So we thought, well, whose accounts are these? You know, are there some high net worth individual? What's going on here? So we were collecting hashes of the account names. So we had a theory. We had a theory that the attacker made a coding error and that he really wasn't trying to try one account 323 million times, another account 100 and something million times. It was a coding error that resulted in that. And we, we suspected, what is the most common coding error? And for any programmers listening, the off by one is a very common programming error because computers start counting at zero and humans, we start counting at one. So oftentimes, when you're, you're trying to reach a value in an array, you, you use the wrong number and you get the wrong value. So we suspected that maybe, well, here, real quick, you have to think about what's in a credential list, right? If you have a list of you know, hundreds to millions of credentials, what is it comprised of? It is typically an email address, then a delimiter, like a pipe symbol, and then the password. 
and there's one of those on every line. So in order to parse the line and pull out the username, you need to take everything to the left of the pipe symbol and then everything to the left of the at sign. Because in US banks anyway, it's typically not an email address for a username. And the attacker would think, well, everything to the left of the at sign might be the username. So that's what you have to pull out. And the code used to do that, if they make one mistake, this off by one error, they will take the part of the string to the right of the at sign and before the delimiter. So they would try gmail.com or they would try yahoo.com instead of you know using the username. So we went ahead and hashed using the same salt and algorithm, all the popular email domains. And we compared those to the accounts that were attempted. And, and sure enough, the attacker did indeed make that error and tried gmail.com 323 million times. So we mitigated the attack. So none of it reached origin, but had we not mitigated the attack, the attack would have had a 0% login success rate because of this coding error. And the audience might find it interesting because we've seen so many credential stuffing attacks over the years, we've analyzed what is the success rate of an unmitigated credential stuffing attack. And it's typically between 0.1 and 3%. So when you're trying hundreds of millions of username password pairs, you're compromising, you're taking over a lot, a lot of accounts. So while I have you here in the last 10 minutes or so, I have to ask you, because I think people will be really, really curious to hear about your time working for the FBI and the CIA and kind of how these organizations fit into this whole puzzle. Because from a merchant perspective, a lot of times it seems as if they're on their own. The laws are written in such a way that they're holding the bag when fraud strikes. When do governmental organizations get involved and what does that look like? I'm sure you can't dive in very deep there, but I'm curious to hear if you're at the FBI's fraud division, what is coming across your desk? What is the threshold that it gets to the point where you're seeing it? Is it national security only? Is it maybe large American companies that have corporate secrets that are considered essential to the government and they don't want to see foreign governments getting a handle on them. Take me through as much as you can at a high level, what that looks like at these types of government organizations. Well, I'll just give you two anecdotes, one from CIA and one from FBI. I guess I'll start with the CIA one. The team I was working on, we were tracking the kidnappers of Daniel Pearl any of your listeners, just Google Daniel Pearl. You'll see he was a journalist who was uh, decapitated and uh, on the internet. One of the very first times something like this happened. The kidnappers were using, I believe it was either a Hotmail or a Gmail account. It's been a, lo- a long time. But each time they would create the new email account, they would, they would misspell or do a creative spelling of kidnapper maybe two Ds or two Ns, three Ps, but always be kidnapper, but it would be a, a kind of a creative misspelling. So they never use the same email account twice. And we knew they, these emails were coming from a particular area in and around Karachi. And all the emails were coming through one IP. It was a, it was a proxy. 
And that proxy was manufactured by a company in the United States. So we needed root access to that proxy. So I met with the leadership of this company. They said, I said, Hey, can you, can you get us, you know, we're trying to save this American. Are you able to get us remote access to this appliance? And they said, yeah, no problem. It's a piece of cake. There's just like one URL they could send to it and they would get admin access. So we were close uh, to being able to identify who these kidnappers were. And then, and then at CIA, the lawyers got involved and I was admonished because I was tasking a US company without having a contract in place. And I just was shocked by this. I know so, I have a JD, so I can tell you that sounds exactly like the kind of shit it, that lawyers pull. So. That's exactly what happened. And I was, <laughs> I was shocked. I was dismayed. So I think at CIA, it's a great, great organization with a great mission and great people, but sometimes they can't get out of their own way. So that's the anecdote about CIA. FBI. Uh, when I was an FBI agent, I was investigating a compromise of a DOD computer. I determined that it originated from China and I wanted to put a a machine in, in front of this compromised machine, sniff all the traffic and perhaps even identify all the tools that were being used, maybe give them some misinfo via Intel that we controlled. You know, I really wanted to have a have a you know multi-year operation, largely because of my experience at CIA. This is how CIA would, would operate. And I proposed it to my leadership at FBI and FBI said, no, no, just send an LHM, which is a letterhead memo. So an official FBI memoranda send it to the legal attache in Beijing and have him or her go to the Chinese government and ask for help. And I, I thought, but it is the Chinese government. What are you talking about? <laughs> ask for help. That's what they asked me to do. So I, I feel like obviously when that happened, the attack went away and we lost that opportunity. And I suspect it just resumed from another location and we didn't get any intelligence. But uh, I think both FBI and CIA filled with great people, great mission. FBI needs higher budget, in my opinion. They don't have enough money to do what they're trying to do. But institutionally, that's where the challenges are in both organizations. The institutional challenges, it's not the people. It's it's uh, years and years and years. It, it's kind of the decisions made by you know Hoover years ago, uh, decades ago, that just live on inside some of these organizations, unfortunately. So if I were king for a day, I'd probably completely reorganize the intelligence community and federal law enforcement so that there were, weren't so many stovepipes. They're working more collaboratively together. So the FBI and CIA do not follow agile development processes, I'm guessing, or management no. principles. I mean, you know, it's been a while since I've been there. Maybe, maybe they're humming along like a finely tuned organization they should be, but I'm skeptical. Um, yeah, you need because, you need the IRS for that, I would think. That's oh gosh, I know that. <laughs> yeah, the IRS they put me through a three year audit. It was, uh, it was well. <laughs> wow, this is interesting. Uh, I was doing a lot of uh, money transfers for some intelligence work that we were doing uh, for the the agency. So I don't know if your audience knows about FinCEN. I suspect many of them do, but the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, if you do a currency transaction of, you know, 10,000, the CTR limit is 10,000. So any sort of $10,000 cash transaction at a bank gets reported. Well, if you're doing 9,500 over and over again, that gets reported to as a suspicious activity report. And all of this is put into a database that all law enforcement can have access to. So if you looked in FinCEN, you're going to see a lot of suspicious activity reports, a lot of SARS on me. 
because of the work I was doing for the intelligence community many, many years ago. So some enterprising, enthusiastic IRS auditor, by the way, right after I arrested the son of an IRS auditor, I get audited and uh, it lasts three years, costs tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees. So yeah, so good to be started on the IRS. Well, I don't, I don't want the IRS to come looking for me. So I don't yeah, know. Maybe, maybe edit, yeah, maybe edit that whole part out. <laughs> <laughs> I always tell people when I'm abroad that I ask non-Americans, you've heard of Al Capone, right? And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. As you know, Al Capone went to jail. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, it wasn't the FBI that got Al Capone. And they say, what? And I said, yeah, it was the tax people. It was the IRS. That's, right. That's the people That's you never mess with the IRS. They will find it, you. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I always pay my taxes and I pay them promptly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad to hear. So we, we, we won't have anything, anything to worry about. So this has been an amazing conversation. I feel like I could take up hours and hours of your time. I, I really, really hope that you will come back on the, the show very soon and we can continue talking about this. I feel like we've just scratched the surface. We did a podcast on human trafficking, which I'm sure you have a lot to say about, unfortunately, because that's such a, a huge issue going on in the world right now. And I just really thank you so much, Dan, for joining us. And I also would be remiss if I didn't tell everyone out there listening, you must check out Dan on the F5 website, the videos and his extremely fierce beard that he has going on. There are some YouTube videos out there. I'll, maybe I'll put them in the show description notes. Amazing, amazing job on the beard, Dan. I think of all the things you've done, that should be the thing you're most proud of. <laughs> well, you got to convince my wife. She's not a fan of the of the beard. In fact, <laughs> at the beginning of the ski season, she broke her leg. She was very depressed. And to cheer her up, I handed her clippers and said, okay, you don't like the beard, you can shave it. And she had already, before I finished the sentence, she had already started shaving it off. So I'm, uh, I don't have the, I, I still have a, a beard, but it's not, it's not that, uh, it's not, not a Santa Claus beard anymore. Well, luckily it has been preserved for history in the YouTube videos on, on the F5 website here. So I encourage our listeners to check that out. It's definitely worth your click. It's definitely worth your click. So Dan, thanks again so much. We'll sign off, tell everyone just where they can find F5, how they can get in touch with you. And I really hope you'll come back on the program in the coming months and, and we can keep talking. Thank you so much, Bradley. I really enjoyed it. F5.com. And really my area of expertise is bot protection and uh, anything that has to do with manual attacks. So if there's something that interests you, you can even email me, d.woods at f5.com. All right. Thanks so much, Dan. Take care. Thank you. Bye.